Welcome back to About Learning with me, Stan Pinson. It's good to have you here. I reckon episode three is where we really start sorting the wheat from the chaff. The well-wishers and family friends very kindly tuned in for the first episode or two, and I'm really grateful. Those of us left now are the hardcore ones, the learning fanatics. So sit back and prepare yourself for a feast. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Taylor, a scientist at Oxford University. Aaron has a lot to share. Alongside his academic career, he's spent the past decade dedicated to causes outside of paid work and study. Aaron is currently a core member of Vichar Manthan, an organisation that provides a platform for exploring issues facing UK society, specifically from a Hindu philosophical perspective. Aaron's academic life and volunteering work have given him a wealth of experience in leadership and in being led, and he has some powerful insights into the power of mentorship. It's really refreshing to speak to someone who, despite seemingly having had loads of conventional success, believes the best leaders have to be mentors. They have to lead without ego. Let's begin. Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, Aaron, you are a scientist and you're working in immunology at Oxford University, um, doing your postdoc studies. Uh, for for people like the, the students that I teach, you are in an amazing place in your career, considering you're in your 20s, um, and you've got an interesting educational journey of your own. Can you tell us a bit about how you got to where you are now? My educational journey started out in America, actually, and uh, I, uh, when I was younger, I when I was four years old, my parents decided to move to the USA as a as an adventure. And um, we lived in East Brunswick, New Jersey, where I attended all of elementary school and all, well, the majority of middle school and the first part of high school. And um, then at that point, I moved over to the UK. Uh, so therefore, I moved straight into year eight. And from year eight onwards, I was uh, at a comprehensive school in rugby. And then I moved to a grammar school, uh, which allowed us a not so clever lot <laughs> um, to join in for A-level for, uh, for the final couple of years. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of my slightly non slightly abnormal educational journey. So yeah. what was useful about that was I got an opportunity to experience both an American education system and also the British education system. And there were some immediate differences I found when I came over to the UK. I found that um, I, I realized that Americans, generally American kids were seemed to be a little bit more mature uh, a little bit more uh, confident, and 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 that and that was a striking difference between between the two sides. The other thing that happened was that when I when I came over from the U.S., they immediately put me into the bottom set of all my classes, 
uh, in the UK. And I think the school had just assumed that um, the American schooling would be would be significantly worse. And later on, I think I've, I've begun to realize that actually I, I happen to be in a very, very good schooling district in the US, which I, I'd like to think is, is probably on the better side of most schools here in the UK. Whereas the worst schooling districts in the US are probably on the extreme opposite end of the spectrum. So I think the, the spectrum is much, much broader in a US educational system, whereas in the UK, yes, you get good and bad schools, but they're probably fairly, fairly central on, the, on that on that spectrum. So so therefore, it was it was quite interesting seeing the, the differences between the two sides. I remember you telling me about um, coming to England and got the feeling that people thought you were a bit of a precocious child because you were just, like confident and bossing people around and you knew what you wanted. Yes. I don't know if that's true. And you ended up becoming head boy as well. No, 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 no. That wasn't a thing. That wasn't no? a thing. No, there was no, there was no head boy. Oh, okay. at, I thought uh, you and Rachel were the, the head boy and head girl. No, no, no. We'd like to think was that, that a... we would have been. <laughs> Okay. Should, should there have been a should there have been an opportunity for that uh, maybe maybe that would have been the case but um yeah i did uh i i i realized that i was more confident than the other students around me um and i was ahead not because i was cleverer than the people around me but more because i i think the education system that i had come from was very thorough and Therefore, I was able to coast through my GCSEs pretty, pretty easily. And because of that, I was I had I was able to pick up on a lot of other opportunities uh, at that school. So I was able to do um, a couple of extra GCSEs, one in law and one in astronomy randomly um, and 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 quite a few things like that. And 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 also quite a few extracurricular activities, which um, which was not uncommon to someone like myself, because in the US, you did spend a good uh, proportion of your time doing extracurricular activities. Um, you'd finish school at what, half two, three o'clock, and then most kids would spend another two hours after school, at school, doing some kind of extracurricular activities. So that wasn't uncommon for me, and therefore moving to the UK and, and doing those sorts of things was, was pretty standard. I mean, I find that interesting because I'm not sure if that was ever the case in the UK where, where schools would routinely put on two hours of things you could do after school. It's certainly not like that now, as far as I know. And I, you know, I think that this kind of extra things that you opt into, these clubs, these sports or whatever, they're like, they're really crucial to developing somebody, a child as a whole person. But we haven't seemed to figure out whether whether the state has any responsibility to provide that at all, whether that should all come from parents. And, you know, if it is, if it is all going to come from parents in this country, it's obviously going to lead to a lot of inequality. I wonder, do you think these sort of extra outside school things that you you took part in, in the US and UK, was that, was that just because the school offered it? Or was it because your parents expected you to do these sorts of things? So I think it, it differs between the US and the UK. So in the UK, the school offered these things. I was doing well, therefore I had the, oppor the extra opportunities um, to do these extra GCSE classes. Um, I also did uh, GCSE Gujarati, um, which a lot of uh, 
kids, Indian kids that grow up in the UK uh, are, are forced to do by their parents. And I, I was among mm-hmm. that, that group of people and I thoroughly hated it, but I'm grateful for it, um, as, as with every other <laughs> um, kid. Um, and that was two evenings a week, every, 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 every day, every week after school. Um, so that was, uh, it was quite a commitment. Um, so that was because of the, uh, because I, I wanted to achieve and I, I, and I, I kind of had that, that habit. And, and these are things that were provided by the school to, to allow students to achieve. But in the US, the, the sort of activities that I was getting involved with were things like, um, there was one club called mock trials where it was like a, it was like a debate club where you'd have these kind of, um, mock trials where you'd have these kind of, uh, scenarios, um, where uh, you'd have to debate and you'd, it'd be done in a very, uh, traditional debating manner. Um, there was, uh, there were, there, there were a couple of the other, other clubs like that, but the majority of these clubs were actually run by teachers in their own time. So it wasn't actually, um, facilitated necessarily by the state. Uh, these mm. were, these were, uh, initiatives that were done on uh, by, by the, t- the teachers initiative because the teach yeah it was it was it was done because the teachers wanted to do them they 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 were interested in the subject and they wanted to inspire students to to learn about that subject and they had the ability to be able to teach that so therefore they did and that yeah. whole culture of doing after school activities was part of the American schooling culture. Um, you even see it in mm. television programs and things like that, that people get in, that kids get involved with, with all of these after school activities. The whole schooling experience in the US is very much that of a community, community experience. Um, in that even parents have a lot larger involvement in your school there. The, the PTA is a, is a powerful force um, to be reckoned <laughs> with. Um, and th- those parents that weren't involved with the PTA and weren't baking cookies for their, for their kids were definitely um, judged for it. Uh, so so it, could, it can definitely go the other way as well. But uh, on generally speaking, that, that community environment that was... Um, created in the US schooling system to uplift kids and inspire them, I think was highly effective. In the school you were at? In the school I was I at. I mean, and that's very, yeah, very, what... very, that's the biggest caveat here is that yes. <laughs> um, the school that I was at was, um, was a very, very good school. I, I, th- I, I, yeah. I, th- I think my parents, we lived in that district because it was a good school and yeah um and that was that was clear you mentioned that the teachers were sort of choosing to do these after school activities i mean now that i am a teacher i can i can imagine that that's what you want as a school you want teachers to be wanting to spend their time doing this but that's only going to happen when the school's an environment where the teachers feel like they're valued. they want to give extra time if they yeah they feel valued exactly if they feel like they're overworked already if they feel like the kids would just throw it back in their faces. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So the, I, I guess the danger agree. is with that sort of system. Yeah. It's, it's not guaranteed. And I guess I work in a school. I work in a school, which is probably classified is definitely in a de- deprived area. And some people would classify as a sort of challenging area to teach. Um, but the school's got a big commitment to, to teaching the whole child. We say 
we say head, hand and heart, we're supposed to be developing like all the parts of the child, that's just our gimmick, all the parts of the child. And part of that is um, projects, so children should be spending two afternoons a week doing a, doing a project in school, which is basically like the after school club you described, but it's sort of written into the school's message and teachers are told, oh, you're teaching a project this year, so you have to design the project, deliver the project. So it sounds kind of less fun than what you're describing, because it's not okay, like a passion, yeah. it's not just whatever you want to do after school. This is really interesting, because what what about the actual um, optionality of this? So it does, do, how, how are students, um, because this is something that's required of all students, right? So therefore it just yeah. becomes another part of that, that curriculum. So if yeah. the students were given the option on whether to do this project or not, or if, uh, or in this case, they're, they're told that they should do it. Do you think that uh, changes the nature of the activity? 100%, definitely. I mean, there's a quite a lot of debate around how much choice there should be because inevitably one project is more popular than the others. You know, it might be the cooking project. Everyone wants to learn how to like bake, but you can only have 12 students in the cooking room. So how are you going to manage that? Essentially, there's very, very limited choice. And I think teachers aren't that happy with the the engagement because um, student, the students are not treating it like they would a club which they've opted into. Often it's just something they have to do. So it definitely doesn't live up to what it should be. I think it's a really great principle that you would make a commitment to spend school time doing things that aren't on the curriculum. The, other, mm. the only other thing that I thought I'd mention about um, uh, before we move on about uh, comparing the US education system to the UK education system and things um, was this one activity that you did quite ritualistically in, in elementary school, which I attribute to my personal confidence and the confidence of most Americans. And this is my personal opinion, but show and tell um was an activity that was done every week in elementary school i recall doing it a lot and where that's uh, for those people that are unfamiliar it's simply you you bring an item in from home you stand up in front of the class and you tell your class about it and that built so much confidence and the ability to stand up and speak in front of people on a week-to-week -week basis i i think that that is like the the key ingredient that US schools have that makes Americans so confident. Mm. I really think that's it. Show it down. <laughs> it's it's interesting what I'm what I'm learning more and more is that our schools they they really push students to be academic and to achieve to get good grades. But you can have really lacking social skills and the school doesn't really care. The school doesn't care if you're too nervous to speak in front of your peers. Um, you know, it it doesn't care if you're confident and eloquent it's it's all about your test scores and that is just wrong considering how important those soft skills are in having a good life I mean career personal life you need to be able to express yourself and have the confidence so there's something big is missing in schools in fact I wanted to mention I was re-looking over um, the coddling of the American mind by Jonathan Haidt which we were talking about before um, and there was a really good example of how education's become more academic focused 
and has kind of left behind this idea of just general development, which is really important. He, he looks at um, the, dif the different standards they've had, and this is the American education system. Before you start first grade, what should your child be able to do? This was a guide for parents. So in 1979, the kind of things they were, this is at six and a half years old, by the way, the kind of things your child should be able to do, um, they should be able to say in such a way that a crossing guard or a policeman could understand where they live. They should be able to um, colour in within the lines. They should be able to ride a small two-wheel two bicycle. They should be able to travel alone in the neighbourhood to a store, school or a playground. This is before even starting school. They should be able to be away from their parents all day without being upset. Um, and they should be trying to write or copy, copy letters or numbers, right? So those are the sort of things that are important 40 years ago. I mean, aside from the fact that ki parents don't even let their kids out of their sight, that's, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of soft skills that they're talking about. Then he contrasted that with, with what you get, uh, this is in Austin, Texas, so one specific example, what a child should be able to do before they start school. They should be able to write all the numbers to 100. They should be able to interpret and fill in data on a graph. They should be able to read books with five to ten words per page. They should be able to form complete sentences using phonetic spelling. So it's gone 100% academic. They don't care whether they can speak, communicate, whether they can be without their parents for any amount of time. It's just what what can you do? Are you going to pass a test already? <laughs> you look shocked. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, I... and, it's tr and it's true, right? So now education has become so orientated about on, um, on academic achievement. It is the perp and 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 the reason being that the purpose of education has now become about you getting a job that that is the the new defined purpose of education it is not a holistic development like what what you were talking about earlier in your school um it is entirely based on will you get a job at the end of it or not and if you do then you have then the education system has has been successful and if you don't, then it's not been successful. And and part of it is that the, therefore the, the, the parameters for success, therefore in our society is is whether you have a job um, in the end of yeah. it or not. And, and not necessarily whether you turn out to be a good person. Yeah. You know what? And I don't think we're even doing that good of an, on a job of optimizing employability. You know, how many people leave school with skills that will fare them well in a job? or even university. So I agree with you. We, we're trying to, we're going for sort of an instrumentalist approach where we want to teach things to kids that they should know that they're going to need later in life. But I don't even think we're creating particularly good employees. I mean, what, what's, what really fascinates me is that this, this debate about whether, you know, education's for stuff you should know in work or whether it's just for the sake of it, it's been going on since you know ancient times in ancient greece your education was either if you were lucky enough to have one was either as an apprentice or a citizen it was either 100 percent um for a job or 100 percent just for your mind and overall betterment and then um i was reading about john dewey which was uh, the guy who invented the dewey system and this is the early 1900s he he basically said education doesn't actually need to serve a purpose on its own it's worthy and 
by learning anything, you'll become more of a full person, which is sort of like the opposite end of the spectrum. And this is over a hundred years ago, and I feel like in school we're almost acting as if it never happened. He sort of said we want to we want to foster sorry we want to foster mental attitudes that that are desirable in citizens. We want to basically create people who are good people, the kind of people that we want. Um, so we should be, you know, in that, if that's true, school should be hitting all the big things, you know, rationality, emotion, how to deal with emotion, values, happiness, responsibility, the idea of choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and if that's true also, education would be largely just about how you interact with other people, not about how you're doing on a test. But can you communicate with other people? Can you collaborate with other people? Can you disagree and debate with other people? And these are all the sort of things that are not on curricula right now but do turn you into a good person and that's is it is very much focused on the individual right the individual development and not not in the context of the individual living in a in a society of people and and maybe that yeah that could could solve a lot of problems if we if we if we taught kids that or we we created a culture around that but um so i thought yeah i, I mean yeah Um, I just, yeah, um, if I'm reading you right, what you're kind of saying is that, you know, by individualistic, kids are thinking about their own goals and their own path, but they haven't even considered the fact that they can change the world, they're, and they're a member of a society, and they can do something to improve it, they can contribute to it, and they even should be making the world a better place. Yeah. I, th I think that's that's not emphasized at all, um, especially in our education system. I don't think I ever received that message um, from from my education in the UK or even really mm. in the USA. In the USA, maybe you have a little bit more of this uh, uh, patriotic attitude towards um, your country and you do your Pledge of Allegiance every morning and, and all of these these things. But that doesn't necessarily lead to you wanting to become a, a contributing member of society. Um, and, and I think I, I see this more because uh, during my, uh, particularly while I was in the UK, I spent a lot of time working as a youth worker for uh, an organization called Hindu Swayam Savat Sangh uh, UK. And um, it is a an organization that works to build leaders, particularly within the Hindu community, um, but ideally, uh, or, or beyond that, for the wider society. And one of the, the fundamental issues that, that this organization has recognized is that if people then do wish to contribute to society, if they, if they do decide that they, this is something that they wish to do, they don't really have the skills, the social skills, or haven't really been developed with those social skills to be able to um, to do so in an effective manner. And in addition, um, a lot of organizations fail because people are a little bit too egotistic and want to wrestle control of the organization as opposed to trying to achieve that, that fundamental goal. So uniquely, this this organization um, 
works to prioritize the development of people as an internal working methodology rather than achieving any particular aim. And, and I think that that has had a huge impact on my life because I've seen what good leadership looks like and what um, leadership that isn't ego driven looks like. And, and, and I think that that has been a really important experience for me. So what is egoless leadership like? So essentially, that means that you are working not for your self-interest, but for the interests of the, the wider organization or the wider society. But because in this organization, we, um, we focus on people development, therefore, sometimes the actual output of the, of the task, whether it may be organizing an event, then you would actually um, prioritize or you'd, you'd, put the, you'd put people in the position such so that their development is prioritized instead of the success of that event. And in doing that, what happens continuously is that you're always working towards building people, building character. And ultimately, I believe, very strongly believe that leadership requires a strength in character. And one of the biggest reasons why I, I was against uh, Trump, I should say, for example, was not because maybe of his policies or whatever, those things really come second, but first and foremost, because this is not what a leader looks like. This is not the character that a leader should have. And the leader should be one that works towards the development of the people around them, that working to uplift the people around them. So you recently moved on from uh, your youth work to something different. Can you tell us about that? So in the last six months, I've been working for an organization called Vitar Munthen. Uh, it's an organization that uh, looks to discuss modern issues, um, largely issues facing Britain um, through a Hindu civilizational lens. And uh, where I say Hindu here, I'm, I'm referring to um, the, the culture um, and, or the dharmic culture, uh, which essentially translates most easily to the word uh, sustainable rather than uh, any, any uh, religious uh, word. And that's been uh, quite an interesting experience of late. Um, but what's important about that organization is, again, it works in a similar manner to try and uplift the people within the organization as a priority, even though we spend a lot of time trying to engage with academics and engage with important members of society that isn't the, the primary focus. The primary focus is to develop the, the workers or the, the volunteers within the organization such so that they are able to influence or they're able to achieve. And that's not, not just within the organization, but in their own personal lives as well. And, and that, that's important.
mentioned um, mentorship. What do you think of as mentorship being? So for me, I have had some mentorship through my youth organization and that definitely developed my my people skills my ability to to work in a, a slightly detached manner uh, which is which is a, an essential skill for academia or or science i should say or research and and that was because of the nature of that organization to to focus on people but then I was also very fortunate to have a mentor in my supervisor and my PhD supervisor was, was incredible. He had this open door policy. He allowed you to, he gave you, he gave you a lot of freedom to explore things for yourself. If you came up to him with an idea, unless it was completely idiotic, he would say, go and try it. You know, so that that freedom for, of innovation was was quite a, a key thing that that he gave. And ultimately, he was. Interested in me developing and, and that was incredibly important and that that is mentorship as opposed to being a boss. Um, any boss would just make sure that you are doing the things that you need to do in order to achieve the the aims of the project. Um, whereas a mentor is somebody that guides you in such a way that you achieve those things and you develop. And I think he was very much the latter. And, and, and the best example of it was the fact that uh, I ended up, uh, what was first the, first the trust that he gave me to, to run projects and to get the external individuals that we, we, um, we worked with, our collaborators, the the NHS staff, etc. But also, I, I ended up leaving um, Liverpool uh, to move to Oxford actually last year. And before I left, my supervisor was was quite uh, upset, not upset, let's say. Betrayed. <laughs> Betrayed, possibly, possibly not. <laughs> I think he he was a, a little bit annoyed that I decided to decided to leave Liverpool. And uh, that was halfway through a, a grant or halfway through a job. And despite that, before I left, he still gave me some advice for, for how I should guide my career moving forward. And, and that is mentorship because there was no self-interest there for him, for, for me to achieve now that I, I was going to be leaving his lab. So therefore, that that is what I I look for in a mentor. That's what I would try to be as a mentor, and what I would look for in in a boss as well. And 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 I I believe that the um, my supervisor now has a lot of similar qualities. And one of the reasons why I decided to go and work for her is that she expresses some of those some of those qualities as well. Now, Oxford is a very different world um, and they're, 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 things are a little bit more cutthroat here, uh, as I've realised. But I, I hope that this, these values, I, 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 I don't want to lose them. They're, they're important to me. And if I have the opportunities to mentor people around me, then I will, I will try to do that.
And a mentor can take, you know, can be a number of different roles. They don't have to be called a mentor. This could be a parent to a child. This could be a teacher. Or, like you said, it could be a boss. All these people are, to some extent, responsible for, like, the output of their charge. You know, a teacher is responsible for the grades in their class. A boss is responsible for the output of their employees. But that doesn't mean they should be narrowly focused on getting the most, the highest performance today out of the person they're in charge of. We should be taking a big picture view. And it's kind of twofold. It's it's caring for the person because it's the right thing to do. It's also long term the best way to help someone become better at whatever it is, becoming a human being, academic studies or whatever their job is. It is the most sustainable methodology of of developing people right to think on the long term to think about what this person could be in five years time and what you need to do to be able to get them there because ultimately if they are if they are achieving excellent things more than what you can and and one of the other things unique to to hss um and i keep going back to this but it was such a um important aspect of my life was this idea that you mentor somebody for the purpose of them replacing you and and the the intention being that okay the the job that you're doing now if you can develop someone to the point that they can do that job then you are now redundant and that's a wonderful thing in the voluntary world <laughs> and and that that system actually makes for a much more uh egoless method of of developing people it's, it's a much more selfless model and i believe that that type of model can can even thrive in a, a paid environment maybe with a few adjustments but i think there's potential there to explore that aaron i think that's a beautiful note to end on uh thank you so much for taking the time i hope if i ever do a phd i'll get a mentor like you um <laughs> Thanks. No, thank you very much. And I wish the About Learning podcast the very best. About Learning? Is that what it's called? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Plug the show. Tell all your friends. <laughs> um, I should say that again. Thanks, Maybe Aaron. I should say that again. <laughs> no, no, I think it's good to end on a joke or a mess up. <laughs> That was Aaron Taylor. If you'd like to learn more about Vichar Manthan, there's a link in the description. What did you think about this episode? And what are your thoughts on the big issues of the day? What should education be for? Is egoless leadership all it's cracked up to be? And can every boss really afford to be a mentor at the same time? Just a note on the podcast process. I'm really enjoying myself and I'm amazed to still be here. I've long thought of myself as someone who generates lots of ideas, but simply can't see through any project that takes time and commitment. But I feel like the conversations I'm having and the connections I'm making through this podcast are energizing me, and they're motivating me through the long lockdown days of work. As always, if you're interested in collaborating, uh, please get in touch. You'll find my email in the description. Also, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode. Thanks for being here. Adios.